I am delighted this evening to be able to welcome Professor John Coates uh, from Harvard Law School. Professor Coates is going to be talking this evening uh, about risk allocation in M&A contracts. Um, and this is a field which, before he became an academic, uh, he was involved in, in practice. And he's now going to present us um, some results uh, from some work he's been doing. So, John, over to you. Terrific. I should say John is willing to take questions uh, as he goes. Right, so feel free at any point just to jump in with questions. Thank you very, very much for inviting me. Um, it's been a delightful visit already, and I'm um, looking forward to today, and we have another session tomorrow that I'm happy to be here for. Um, so this project is um, – can I get up and walk around? Am I allowed to do that? Okay. Um, is is, a, is one of a series. Um, it turns out that um, – Academics in the M&A world and practitioners in the M&A world rarely talk much to each other, at least traditionally. And when they do, they tend to talk to each other mainly about things like hostile takeovers and the regulation, public policy regulation in that space. And so a large part of what I'm trying to do coming from practice and into academia and teaching is trying to translate what actually goes on in practice, which rarely has much to do with hostile takeovers in the United States. Actually, it's a distinction between the United States and the United Kingdom that most of the transactions in the U.S. rarely involve public offers for even publicly held companies. They're privately negotiated transactions even for publicly held companies. Um, and as a result, much of the action in practice is in the contract. Uh, it's not so much in the public regulation, although that's important. Um, it's uh, far more in the contract. And so this project, as I'll get to in a bit, involves looking at a bunch of M&A contracts. I worked on many when, when I was in practice, but I, I know from practice that they vary a great deal. And so the goal here was to assemble uh, a, a couple of hundred um, contracts, have my poorly paid research assistant students uh, go through them with my directions to find patterns in them and to generate from that a first cut at trying to do a more systematic description and to some degree analysis and explanation of what's in them. And so this paper is on risk allocation. Um, others in the series, uh, which I'm happy to, if people have curiosity about, um, either today or in follow-up emails if you want to um, talk about, have a paper on uh, managing disputes um, uh, in the M&A context and the provisions that are in the contracts that are designed to anticipate litigation. Uh, uh, another paper on deal structure, how the deals are fundamentally structured. Um, uh, another paper on what uh, what produces completed deals versus non-completed deals and what kinds of contract provisions seem to lead to completed deals rather than um, uh, those that are not. And then finally, another paper on, on the market for deal lawyers more broadly in, these, in this contract setting. Um, all, three, all of these papers really are sort of at the intersection of basic economic theory, much of which is quite good, quite useful, largely unknown to practitioners, at least in their brains. They don't think in economic theoretic terms, in my experience, although they may very well act as if they do. They don't think that way. Um, at the same time, um, uh, academics, this is my law and reality joke, uh, uh, academics largely are not at all in touch with the reality of MA practice, and so of course part of the project is talking both directions, trying to get the practitioners to understand a little more deeply and more self-consciously the theory that might explain some of the patterns in the contracts we work on, at the same time as getting the academics to understand that the theories that have been developed so far are either grossly incomplete in many respects or often developed in silos. And so one of the themes of this paper in particular is that when you think about risk allocation theory, 
there's several different strands which have largely not talked to one another in the academic literature, and I'm trying to get them to talk to each other through the prism of the basic sample here. Uh, and then finally, um, because I was a practitioner, I also know that practitioners are often bad at what they do, um, and you can actually observe patterns in the contracts, which I'll show you a couple in this one, um, that reflect varying degrees of experience uh, and, I think, confidence in advising their clients about different kinds of risk uh, allocation provisions and kinds of things. Confidence or confidence? Uh, both. Uh, both. Both confidence and confidence, right? Um, and, I, and just to anticipate, I think, you know, sort of at one extreme of incompetence, you see certain patterns, and at another extreme of a great deal of confidence, with confidence, you see different kinds of uh, variation as well. Um, all right, so that's just a very high-level overview. Um, let's get that going here. So here's the, the kind of review, high-level review of the theories that are bringing the data here. The core of it is uh, a theory that goes back to, if I were a name dropper, I would talk about Ken Arrow and other Nobel Prize winners, uh, who laid down basic microeconomic foundations for understanding when insurance contracts are entered into. Or, or to sum, summarize it all. Um, there's uh, different strands of this literature. Um, some of it emphasizes differences in risk references. Some of us are more risk averse than others, and so we find insurance for that reason. One strand, somewhat different, emphasizes that whenever one party can influence another's risks, there are more hazards that arise, and that can give rise to the uh, to, to uh, advantages that can flow from the contract between the two parties who can affect one another while hazard. Um, and in particular, in the M&A context, um, if you think about the moment at which a buyer starts increasing the probability they're going to buy a target, the target then can influence the value of what it is the buyer is going to get. And then after the deal is closed and the buyer takes control going forward, the buyer is now in control and to the extent the seller has any ongoing interest in the company, for example, if they take stock in the buyer as consideration in the deal, you've got a shift in who can affect the outcome of various risks right in the middle of that process. And so that's going to allocate risk whether you contract, it, contract for it or not, just that shift in property entitlements. And so the question then is, can we improve on just that basic shift generated by property law? Can we improve it through contracts that lead up to the closing or follow the closing between the buyer and the seller? Um, uh, in particular, um, uh, well, we'll come back to that. Another theme in this literature is this idea of asymmetric information. The seller typically will know a lot more about the seller's business and the buyer will coming in, although that's not always true because in some contexts you have particularly dispersed owners of the seller who may know very little actually about the underlying business of the company, may know less in fact than the buyer. And so the differences in information and information will shift depending upon the ownership structure and management structure of the company. One of the key points I'll come back to several times in this, in this deal. When you have asymmetric information, again, you have a potential explanation for why risk should be allocated in one way or another and often differently than basic property law entitlements would allocate the risk. If the party that had lots of information under property law would not bear the costs of the, uh, of the risks that they had information about, they may be in a position to provide insurance in an efficient way uh, to the other party. Um, 
Okay, that's, that's risk allocation theory, quick high-level overview. Often completely unconnected to it, at least in my experience in, in academia, is a whole separate body of literature related to costs of transacting, costs of contracting. Um, there is quite complex theory in, in some respects, Oliver Hardesty fit here recently or last year. He's been through this um, uh, seminar series, does a lot of very good thinking in this area. Um, I think most of the transaction or contracting cost literature is not relevant to this paper, uh, largely because it's, um, it's in my view, hyper-rational. It's got a level of rationality assumed in it that is far beyond what, in fact, in practice, uh, real practitioners have in their heads. There's more basic uh, transaction cost points that I think are relevant to understanding these contracts. And in particular, there's just a standard division under another uh, economist, Oliver Williamson, divided up transaction costs into, among other things, the cost of writing the contract, um, which is one element. Um, that's usually the one that's emphasized in most of the economic thinking in this context. Um, but I'll offer another, which is enforcement costs. Uh, even if you have a fairly simple contract, it can be very, very expensive in practice to practically enforce the contract. Both of these things, I think, are going to show up in the data that I'm going to show you. And I think there are, and this is perhaps the most important claim of the paper from a theoretic perspective, is that these two bodies, risk allocation and transaction costs, are roughly equal in, in importance in trying to explain the patterns in the contracts that I'm going to be presenting to you. Um, um, there are people who are in the first camp who think that I'll wildly exaggerate transaction cost relevance, and there are people in the transaction cost camp who think I'm going to wildly overstate the value that risk allocation theory can bring to, to doing this. And I think from my practitioner perspective, actually, they do, uh, but they don't, they both do important work in trying to explain uh, the patterns in the contracts. And then finally, there's agency cost theory, which in some contexts in finance is very, very important, um, but in the M&A contracting context, it's rarely been applied with any serious rigor, and it's one that I keep coming back to, again, because I was a lawyer, and lawyers are agents. Lawyers can take advantage of their clients, they do all the time. That ought to show up in predictable ways in the contracts that they write for their clients, even sophisticated clients, because unlike most types of services, legal contracting, legal contracting services are the kind of things that you can never really evaluate, ever. It's, it's not like you take your car to a mechanic and then it breaks down in three months and then you know they didn't do a good job. It's like you take your car to the mechanic and it breaks down in three months and maybe that's because they didn't do a good job or maybe it's just out of sheer luck or maybe of some other factor caused it. And you really have no good way of getting feedback uh, effects constraining lawyers, particularly at the high end of, of the M&A world. And so I, I submit to you there's a lot of room here for using agency cost theories between client, corporate client, and lawyer to explain some of the patterns um, in the data. So let me pause there. That's just a very, very rapid review of pre-existing work, all summarized in the paper. Um, and then just say very quickly, there's almost no empirical application of any of this in the M&A world. Uh, as far as I know, there's no sustained empirical attempt to test any of these theories against um, contracts prior to this and related papers. Um, Ron Gilson um, at Stanford in Columbia has the best theoretical application to the MA world of this body set, sets of work. And he came up with this idea. Is this familiar? Do you think transaction cost engineers, people will have heard of this idea that lawyers are sort of mainly about trying to reduce transaction costs? Um, that's the goal of these contracts. And in a lot of ways, what this paper is doing is testing some of his basic um, uh, conjectures in that 1984 piece. 
which he based on his practice experience, for which he didn't actually then uh, apply to in any systematic way empirically. Okay, so here are some of the kinds of ways in which risk is allocated in MA contracts. The kind of risk I should emphasize that I'm really starting with here and throughout the rest of the talk is not the risk that the deal won't go through. That's a different kind of risk addressed by different kinds of provisions. Rather, this is a type of risk that if the deal goes through, that the buyer will or will not get what the buyer thought they were getting in terms of value or uh, value changes or operational changes from the moment they're thinking about doing the deal to long after the deal is over. Um, there are lots of other kinds of risks associated with M&A, um, you know, um, all kinds of things, but basically uh, it's value risk that we're talking about. And there are three fundamental mechanisms that you can observe in these contracts for allocating risk. One is basically an insurance contract called an indemnity, is the jargon here. Um, they typically focus on two things. They focus on drawing a line at the closing between liabilities that arise before that and those that arise after. And typically, the going in assumption in one kind of deal is to allocate liabilities before the closing to the target owners. They keep them, they retain that risk, and the buyer picks up everything going forward, which is right in line with standard um, moral hazard theory, right? Who's in control will determine who gets the liabilities. Um, as you'll see, that's true, but there's also lots of deals where that's not true. So that's, that's one thing. Second thing is the buyer can ask for specific warranties representations to be linked to an indemnity. Um, they, they can, but don't always, I'll emphasize. Many of the reps and warranties in a contract are not, in fact, linked to any kind of official indemnity. Um, there may be some background tort law uh, liability attached if the, those reps are, are purposefully um, misstated. Um, but there's no, often there's no contractual liability, but there often is. So that's a second type of indemnity. Totally different class of risk sharing, com conceived of completely differently by practitioners in a different section of the agreement, and yet accomplishing many of the same fundamental economic purposes as a price adjustment. These are just what they sound like. The price is set, and then it's adjusted, depending upon the way various risks play out. These almost always run from signing, or shortly before signing, to closing, and then they stop shortly after closing. It's a bit of a puzzle, just fundamentally, why lawyers would buy these ways of allocating risk up in this way, but this is just a fact. These are typically linked to explicit changes um, in certain kinds of accounts, and most common is working capital, but they also vary amongst. So there's actually, and I don't really, in this paper, get into trying to explain the details of which of the kinds of account adjustments are reflected in these price adjustment mechanisms. It would be a great separate paper to try to do that because there's a huge amount of variation even within uh, these provisions. Third and finally, and this is the one that's gotten the most, I would say, if you went around and asked academics about what's the most common way of allocating risks in an MA context, the one that Ron Gilson emphasized in the paper is earnouts. Um, these are what they sound like. The earnings of the company going forward will or won't uh, be paid to the target owners. So it's post-contract risk that the earnings are or are not what the buyer thought they would be. Um, that's maybe the most natural way of thinking where the value um, variation can come from. And uh, the two most standard metrics for, for linking these risk allocation clauses are earnings and uh, cash flow earnings before. Income taxes, depreciation, and amortization, or even thought. 
Um, right. So those are the basic families. Then, as a way of reducing the cost of enforcement, um, already anticipating now one of the transaction cost elements here, are three different ways to make it easy for the buyer to collect from the target owners if it turns out one of these three risk adjustments are triggered after the closing. These include holdbacks, escrows, and paying with debt. All of them do basically the same thing, which is hold back a portion of what the target owners would otherwise get to prevent them from flying off to Brazil or whatever jurisdiction you can't be extradited from these days uh, or disappearing in the woods. The buyer keeps it for some period of time, and then after the risks have been resolved or not, then the money is finally paid out. It obviously is easier to collect from yourself than for the buyer, so a holdback or a debt consideration uh, debt payment is the, is the simplest way to achieve this. However, it generates some risk for the target owners, right? The buyers also could cheat, and so this isn't cost-free. This is attempting to balance the benefits and costs of both buyer and target in uh, reducing uh, the costs of enforcement of both the buyer's entitlements against the seller's entitlement. Yeah, Jonathan? Um, when you say debt consideration, do you mean like um, having bonds issued by the yeah, yeah to the, precisely. The buyer pays the target owners with bonds or a note or something like that. Functionally, you know, it's no different from a holdback, although practically they're documented slightly differently and they have somewhat different consequences because typically the notes could be negotiated on, whereas the, uh, the holdbacks usually couldn't be. Uh, escrows, it's the same thing except you use a third party to hold the money instead of the buyer holding the money. Um, okay. And then finally, I will get a little bit into some of the details of the indemnities. And these are ways of tailoring the, the extended identification based on time, how long do they last, equivalent to statutes of limitations. Uh, you can cap them, much as you might cap exposure under insurance policy. You can have exceptions or fraud or for double counting in various ways. Um, you can have thresholds and deductibles, all kinds of fancy uh, detailed contracting that you see in the insurance context you see here as well. So that's just a roadmap of the kinds of provisions that I'm looking at in the future. Any other questions on the basic mechanics? Okay. Um, so here's some quick hypotheses drawn from these three existing theories. So first point, obvious one, target owners will retain risk. Um, as you'll see in a moment, sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. Um, second, they're more likely to retain risk if the buyer is um, outside their industry, where they're gonna, the buyer's going to have less information than the target owner. It's the basic point drawn from information theory. Uh, dispersed owners of SEC registered targets in particular are going to be less likely to retain risk. Why? For two reasons. One, the target, if it's SEC registered, will already be providing lots of information to the buyer, reducing the information basis for allocating risk. And second, um, as uh, the, the, um, dis the, the dispersed owners are less likely themselves to have information than the concentrated owner who's running the firm. The two different information reasons you expect information, uh, uh, dispersed owners to be less likely to provide uh, allocation, risk allocation, um, to retain risk allocation. Um, and that's going to be particularly true for future risk post yield. Um, uh, a, a point that's going to coincide to some extent, but sometimes not, smaller targets, their owners are typically going to be less wealthy. On average, in general, there's some evidence to suggest that less wealthy people are uh, more risk averse. So as between the target owner and the buyer, the buyer is actually going to be on that dimension alone better able to bear the risk and so less likely to ask for the insurance from the target owners. 
than uh, owners of larger companies. Okay, yeah, John. So, um, inside or outside the industry, um, is that is that um, going to cut straight onto sort of strategic versus financial buyers, um, or do you see significant numbers of buyers who are other industrial firms, but who are outside the industry? So both. You, you I mean, you'll see in the data um, a little bit of summary statistics. I may not have all of the industry data in this particular paper, but I can get it to you. Um, you have both, right? So you have PE buyers who, by definition, um, well, I actually should take a step back. The data, it's a little actually unclear how to think about PE buyers, right? Because um, there are some PE funds that, are, that have portfolio companies that are, you know, and, and they're very knowledgeable about those industries. But if you look at the standard industry codes for the PE buyer, it won't map onto their portfolio investments. So it's going to be a crude proxy, but in general, the PE buyers are going to be less knowledgeable than the strategic buyers in the same industry, all those people. Um, and you have both in the sample. Um, there's actually, a surprise, to me, a surprisingly large number of diversifying purchases by strategic buyers um, in, in the sample. Um, I thought we, you know, finance theorists had, had convinced everyone that was a bad idea, but it seems like no one's learned that lesson in a deep way, uh, at least in general. Um, Okay, transaction cost theories. Um, smaller deals, less likely to include, just out of a sheer, you know, it's, it's expensive to negotiate and write down these things, so it's not going to be worth it if the deal is small. And then a slightly different reason now, and this is a, a key point in the empirical part of the paper, is to distinguish a different reason why dispersed owners would be less likely to provide risk. Um, here on this one, it's less because of information and more because of enforcement. Because if you were going to enforce an, an insurance contract against the 8 million shareholders that Procter & Gamble has, that's expensive. That's an expensive proposition. Right? You could do it. It's possible to imagine doing it. Lots of mechanisms you could imagine for setting it up, but all of them would have a great deal of cost attached to the enforcement alone, as opposed to a single shareholder of a privately held company where they own 100% of it and you know where they live and you can enforce the contract very easily against them. So this is going to be different, right? And so one way to distinguish here is... Uh, first, we're going to look at somewhat dispersed but not SEC registered companies to see what we see. And if we're going to hopefully get different um, predictions then, depending upon which theory is operating. If it's just information, then once you get, I'm going to, I'm going to argue, more than 10 shareholders, the 11th through, say, 199th shareholder, they're not really in a great position. They have a whole lot of information about the company that the buyer can't get. But um, that company won't be SEC registered. Right. And enforcement against 150 shareholders is still pretty hard. It's a whole lot harder than against one. So this is going to be a way of trying to distinguish which of these two theories is doing more work uh, in predicting um, uh, public ownership deals with risk allocation versus private. Um, moreover, I think if you're just working on enforcement costs, that's going to apply both to indemnities and to earnouts. There's going to be a general fall-off as ownership disperses. Whereas on the other side, on information, the information is going to bind, it's going to, that's going to matter right away. Earnouts going to be less likely no matter what the ownership uh, dispersion is, uh, because it's future, and then uh, it'll be less, it'll have less impact on past, past uh, liabilities on that on information. Agency cost theories, this is just what I was alluding to with Ed. I'm going to predict that highly inexperienced lawyers are going to be less likely to use some of these mechanisms simply because they don't know about them. And very experienced lawyers are going to be 
uh, less likely to insist upon them in their full force. They're going to be more careful in tailoring them to the deal because they're more confident and they're better able to price the risk. Okay. Presume the allocation of lawyers to deal is not done. True. So it may well be that you allocate an inexperienced lawyer to a deal that doesn't require a It's true. It may be that the clients are fully aware of the limitations of their lawyers and select the lawyers knowing that they're going to be unable to contract well for them. So I'm not in this paper intending to do any kind of, make any kind of general causal claim about how important it's the lawyer agency cost versus just. But either way, that's a pattern that, that's well, interesting. Well, there's an endogenous effect that may not be an agency. If I get to a large firm and it gives me the junior person, it's because the large firm cares about its reputation and knows that I don't need a sophisticated. Well, okay, it's not, it's not an agency effect in the, in the sense of having hired someone and then the agent further takes advantage of you beyond the expectation of what their incompetence is. But it is an agency point in the sense that the client is choosing someone knowing that they have less experience than someone else. And it's going to be priced in to the client-lawyer uh, relationship, but it will still have an impact ultimately on the outcome of the contract negotiation, right? I mean, that, so if, 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 if what you're interested in is controlling lawyers, that's not this point. But if what you're interested in is trying to explain what's in the contracts, I still, still think it's a, it's a slightly different reason you end up with different contracts than if it's just purely outcome. I'm right? just questioning the notion that it's a moral hazard. Right. It's... it's, it's um, Less information in the in the mind of the, of the lawyer, which the client already knows. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's not moral hazard. It's not exactly Right. Right. Um, again, if, so if what you're interested in in this, so I have other papers in which I'm interested in that moral hazard. That's not primarily this point. This point is just that um, you choose. You put it slightly differently. If you were to go to a doctor and you knew that all of your, your surgery was a minor surgery, you would choose a particular kind of doctor who doesn't know how to do brain surgery, and that's going to affect then the kinds of techniques the brain surgeon or, or your surgeon would use. And so if you're, what you're interested in is predicting the patterns of the surgical technique, then it still matters that you're going through a lawyer who doesn't, or a doctor who doesn't know as much. Um, it's going to affect the patterns. Sure. Right. Right. But, right. So no, that's a supplementary question. Yeah, yeah. How do you um, classify the sophistication for lawyers? Is it by person or by yeah? So you'll say by firm. Yeah, both. But in, in this one, it's primarily at the firm level. Let me I can jump through that. So let me give you a little data just to soften you up a little, and maybe the idea there's some agency here. So um, six percent of the deals in the sample had solo practitioners working them. Let that sink in for a second. Solo practitioners, not in a law firm. They were working in a shing, you know, just hang up a shingle with Bob. Uh, he handles tax, employment, everything else under the sun, as well as m and Okay. In the same sample also is Skadden Arps, uh, who handles something like 800 deals in my time period and, you know, whatever. So I'm betting there's a huge range of, of knowledge as between the two kinds of lawyers. Then, um, uh, uh, <laughs> as I had my students going through the coding, they kept coming back to me with things like, I heard this story before. Um, what happens if the contract says X in one part and not X in another part? How do we code that? I can't give a framing contract. There it is, X and not X. Uh, or a cross-reference to a section of the contract that doesn't exist. Or a defined term that's not defined. Um, I, you know, so these were things that that a student with no training spotted in errors without being asked to. We found them in 7% of the contract. 
Okay? This is a lower bound, I would suggest, since we weren't looking for them. Um, the error rate of those people who had done no prior deals in the sample was just that of those. So oh, this is a way of saying, you know, there's a, just a giant amount of, of difference in experience, and however you think of those errors, the client probably didn't actually anticipate when they hired the lawyer, they're going to get conflicting terms in the same contract. They might have thought, in general, the quality is going to be lower, and it might include leaving the suture in the, the sealed wound afterwards. Is this going to be a transaction cost on multiple agency cost on Yeah, absolutely. That's because they're more expensive. Because he's cheap. I mean, yeah. The publishing is expensive, but yeah. it's I think it's worth the Yeah, but I, I I still think it would, if it were sort of a nice, simple, optimal world with transaction cost being the driver, then the lawyer would simply recognize that they were being paid to be good enough, which is to say not very good, and just do it and not have errors in the contract. I mean, that is to say, they would just simply have a standard form. Here's what it's it is. If they're already in the form. All right. If you're already. No, it's if you're doing a deal. You have to proofread it, right? I mean, you have to pay attention. It is expensive to have really nice-looking documents, right? And if you're, if you know that you're a cheap, no, but if you know you're a cheap lawyer, you don't have nice-looking documents. You just use a standard form that's really basic and doesn't attempt to do anything fancy, and therefore it's cheap. It's really cheap, even cheaper than trying to tailor it in a bad way. It's not a moral hazard, right? I mean, this is. I know I'm getting involved, but I know he's getting one X and one X with a very high probability. He knows it as well. Right. It's just cheap. I get it. I get it. <laughs> I just want to emphasize ex ante, the I'm not claiming this paper. I have anything to say about whether ex ante the client is losing more than they thought they was they were in the cost of the lawyer versus the benefit of the lawyer trade-off. Right. I, I'm not making any claims in this paper on that one. Uh, Having said that, I, I have in many other contexts talked to clients about what they do think they're getting and not getting, and I can tell you they don't know what they're getting. So just this is just from on high on this paper. Lawyers are no better than you guys are, and you have good your doctors are. Um, and just reflect for a minute on what do you know about how good your doctor is relative to the next available doctor at the same price? Almost nothing. Um, in general, particularly uh, with the younger people in the crowds who I'm thinking of, who've been to doctors less often. As you get older, uh, you start learning more. But even, even now, I would say, I know a fair amount about my doctor. I don't know nearly the amount I know about relative to other contexts where the services are a lot easier to evaluate. That way. Um, anyway, I, this is a minus part of the paper. So, uh, but that's all right. Jump in. You sample contracts which you looked at. How did you? Yeah, sample. Here we go. So we got two samples the contract sample and the lawyer sample. The contract sample and the lawyer sample also respond to your earlier question about how I'm coding them for experience. Um, this even a contract sample is just a random sample, US targets only, so not doing anything in Europe in this one. Um, they have to be control bids. Uh, uh, they're from that period, which if I'd known at the beginning we were going to have a financial meltdown, I would have probably widen the time period, but it is what it is. I have some before the meltdown and some after the meltdown, so there's probably some of that effect in here, but not a lot. This is a relatively small sample. This is a first cut, right? Um, this, this part of the paper, 200 total, but in this one it's 120 divided equally into private and public targets, all matched by size, industry, 
and years, so these are as closely comparable as I can get to publicly held and privately held deals. And one of the overall points of the paper and the related papers, these are two totally different universes of contracts. The contract provisions are completely different. Um, if you go through them, what's important in them are just dramatically different things. Um, uh, uh, it's basically SPC data, but then augmented by going through the contracts and coding them up, adding CompuStat data on the companies. Um, uh, let's see what else I want to say. For the lawyers, um, it's a broader sample to get enough observations per lawyer to be able then just to use number of times they appear, number of times they appear in a public or private deal, dollars involved in the deals. These are all different ways of proxying for their levels of experience uh, in the transaction. John. So of the 18,000 transactions, yep. what proportion of those are public and what proportion are private? Um, yeah, let's see. I actually have that somewhere. Let's see if I can find it back here. Somewhere back here. Here we go. There you go. So by dollars, it's about an equal split between public buyer, private buyer, all the four quadrants. And by numbers, it's you know overwhelmingly private companies buying private companies. This actually is one of the points for academics, which is almost all of the research and writing is focused on the red, uh, no, sorry, the, the, um, the black uh, public companies buying public companies or uh, the private buying public, the upper half of the circle, and almost no academic writing, at least in the US, is focused on the lower half of the uh, left-hand circle or that giant white space in the right-hand circle. Okay. Go back. Um, so, any questions about answer your question on the sample? Yes, yeah. well, I'm not familiar with the terminology. Okay. What's SDC? Uh, yeah, so it's just uh, it's owned by Thompson, the you know, or Thompson's company, and they collect it and they package it and we sell it. Uh, how do they get like, the contracts we in house? Yeah, so, yeah, so to be clear, the contract level data is not from Thompson. That's me and my research assistant. So the identification of the deals is from Thompson. They get that just by looking at press releases or announced deals. Uh, and then uh, I then had, I personally went to the SEC website. Now, the way we got the private contracts was we had to limit the sample. This is an important limitation uh, in the sample. The private targets had to be bought in the deal by a public buyer in order to get the contract. So these are not representative of all private private deals. These are representative of public companies buying private deals. Right? And moreover, the target had to be relatively large in order for the public buyer to have to follow the contract to be you know, more than 20% of its size. And so it's not even representative of that part of the quadrant, but it is representative of the larger private deals. Right? It's going to be, on average, these are similar to the kinds of transactions that would be significant for a private target. Okay. So are these going to be, if Blackstone buys a private company, it will show up? It will not show up. But if Buffett does, it will. Right. If Berkshire Hathaway does, it will. Right. If, if the target's big enough. Relative. For Buffett, actually for them, no. But for well, a medium-sized public company buying, yeah, you can get a pretty good private company and have to. Yeah. Um, OK. This is so let me just follow up. For somebody like Buffett, yeah. what is the threshold? If he buys a $5 million private company, yeah, it's, it's roughly, it's a little more complicated than this, it's basically 20%. So it targets 20% of the buyer's assets, you can find in the contract. 
Okay? This shows you the overlap and ownership dispersion between the two classes of targets, SEC registered and non-SEC registered. Um, the red are the publicly held targets, the blue are the privately held targets. Um, the, um, you know, to me, it was interesting when I did, I did, was not expecting this, the number of companies that are SEC registered that don't have to be. Um, in the U.S. until recently, it used to be three or five hundred, depending on which, for which reason you were counting, um, uh, was the trigger. Typically, it was 500, was sort of the real trigger for public registration. And there are a lot of companies to the right of that that are in red. Um, and likewise, I was surprised at how many private targets for which I could get ownership data, which it's hard to do, um, were to the left of 10 um, in that in that sample, not a huge number, but still more than I would have ever expected. Is this a randomly chosen uh, sample of private companies? So you get. Did you check if they had public data? And so yes, yeah, so a large number of the of the red ones, particularly the ones at like thirty and below, are there purely because of debt and contracts that, the, that they agreed to stay public. But but a large number just have you know have never had or allowed the record holder numbers to fall below three hundred, and just you know they seem to prefer being lit, just as there are companies that like to go dark, there are companies that like to stay lit for their presumably bonding cost reasons, you know, reducing the cost of capital. Um, so we're going to look. We're going to exploit that overlap a little bit in the in the regression. So here's just a quick uh, snapshot of risk adjustment provisions overall in the two samples, um, and you can see that um, uh, for public targets, there's almost no risk allocation of the kind that we're talking about. So there's some, but almost none. And the private target, there's a huge amount, uh, but it's not all. So the public-private distinction is going to be very important, as a, like off the charts important in terms of predicting whether or not these kinds of risk allocations are going to be in these contracts. But it's not the whole story on the other side. And particularly, it's not the whole story on the private target side. Okay, any questions on all that? Diversifying bids you were asking about earlier. 47% of the sample are um, either PE buyers or strategic buyers going outside their their industry, and the total the percentage of PE buyers I don't have that up here, but it's about 15% of the overall. Um, so it's a significant number of strategic buyers going outside their industries in these fields. All right, and that just reproduces the basic point. This it's a little hard to read, but. Um, Basically, I just add up the number of types of risk allocation provisions, which is a little bit purposely stupid, just sort of abstracting from, for a second from what's in them, just to sort of make it more tractable to study this. And you see a lot of variation in how many of these provisions there are. Um, for public targets, however, 85% of them use none. And for private targets, the bulk is somewhere in the middle, two or three of the different types. You said that the private targets of public Yes. So does that mean that the dispersion of ownership, the dispersion of size of companies between private acquisitions is going to be greater than Yeah. Well, um, greater. I mean, it sort of depends on how you count it. Um, you're going to get a lot of. I'm just wondering whether relative size. The two parties. Um, 
So it's actually something I control for in the, in, in the limited amount of regressions I can do with a small sample. Um, um, yeah, you would expect it to matter. Although, I, when I think, when I try to map basic scalpation theory onto the relative size point, it actually, it's not as simple as it, it's not a straightforward thing. And initially, I thought, well, the bigger the target, you know, that's going to matter. But unless it's working through risk aversion, um, which fundamentally is a wealth effect on the target side, it's, I haven't been able to, at least yet to convince myself that I, you know, relative size will matter, but why is it mattering? Why is it True, it might, right, it, coming over, right, yeah. fair point. Um, okay, yeah, good. Um, a couple of other quick things. Um, in the middle, the industry effects don't seem to show up strikingly here, but you'll see later they, they, they come back again once you um, control for ownership. Uh, same thing with domestic. There's not enough, pro unfortunately, cross-border deals in this to really make anything of the differences with cross-border. Um, small size does seem to matter, so that there. Um, if the bigger, if the bidder is larger than the median bidder in the sample, it's um, basically not doing much risk allocation. If it's smaller, then it's doing a fair amount. And there's the ratio that you're asking about. Um, and that, at least just in the simple two by two, is, is mattering to the distribution. Um, but each of these comparisons, of course, is not controlling for the others. And so it's hard to know exactly what's going on in these simple bivariates. So we're going to do some multivariate a little bit. Um, again, small samples, meaning we're not going to be able to do everything you'd ideally like to do. But um, this is by way of exploratory analysis. So all targets with ownership data. Um, you see both public ownership and the number of share, the log of the number of shareholders mattering um, in the sense of correlating significantly with how many risk allocation provisions are used and exactly the way that the theory predicts. Um, and then the next two column, next three columns, we're all trying to figure out how much of this is about information and how much of this is this about transaction cost. And I've convinced myself at least that it's all of them, it's both. Um, so in the second column, that's just the private lease. So we take the SEC out of it, and the number of shareholders matters. Um, in the third column, this is limiting just to under 200. So we've taken off the extreme of dispersion. And there, size doesn't matter anymore. So, I mean, the number of shareholders doesn't matter anymore. So it seems to be all about SEC beyond a certain point, which is, I think, consistent, in my view, with enforcement costs being significantly sort of doesn't keep going after you get to a certain threshold of enforcement cost size. Enforcement costs just are so big that it doesn't matter whether it's a thousand or two thousand or three thousand shareholders. You're just not going to think about doing that very much, at least in this kind of a small sample. And then same with uh, just ten and up um, uh, record uh, number of record holders matters even after you can call for registration. So between ten record holders and three hundred record holders, the number of holders matters. And I. I think that in that zone, that's most consistent with transaction costs because, again, you've got you know, 50 shareholders. Many of them are going to know nothing in a detailed way about the company. Um, and if you really are going to, if you really want to get the information and have incentives from the management of a company like that, you can do it in other ways than through the basic deal. Can I take back your, let's just say a few more words about your company sample? Yeah. Sort of traditional private companies like, I don't know, automobile dealerships, or are they venture capital 
more marginal, but nevertheless, the effects are pretty persistent um, at using uh, risk allocation. So really inexperienced firms and very inexperienced firms are less likely, and the ones in the middle are more likely. You may not have the data, but before you create a company, you should look at the volatility of the stock price. Yep. And then get some idea what you need. Yep. And another thought I've had, although I haven't done it yet, I think, because that's just on the public company side, remember, we rarely see it at all from public companies, so I'm not going to get a lot out of that, but I, from the private company side, just looking at sort of four-digit SAC volatility of earnings for a whole class of, you know, for that, for that industry in prior year and using that, other kinds of measures like that to, to try to predict um, is a better control for this. Um, and so, um, let me, let me say two other words here about things that are not in the slides that I'm still working on. The design of the risk allocation also matters. So, um, and it also correlates with these other factors. So, um, very experienced lawyers tend to be more likely to, um, very experienced buyer lawyers tend to be more likely, all else equal, uh, to have lower caps on the insurance, shorter survival periods, so it's not just whether the risk is allocated at all, but they actually pull it in. They, they, they reduce the amount the buyer has to pay for. And my theory here is that those lawyers are smarter at letting the buyer more sensitively price what it is that they're paying for in these insurance contracts. They don't overpay. And the lawyers in the middle, the middle experienced lawyers are more likely to use a standard form. And the lawyers who've never done one of these at all before are, they have a bad form or they're using a form from a completely unrelated context and so they just leave these things out altogether. That's sort of my stylized picture of how these things end up in the context. Yeah. So it's funny stupid, but are you, are you talking about the lawyers who are acting for one particular side? Yes. Lawyers on both so I've looked at both. The things that seem to matter, at least in terms of the correlations I have with the buyers, Target lawyers don't seem to matter in this, you know, again, small sample, so I'm not making too much out of that, but, um, Just on that point, yeah. isn't it the case that if someone's at a big firm, that, and the negotiator the deal, they're more likely to have someone from a big firm across the table? Yeah. And so that would be pushback. Yeah. As a result, a little bit of sure that the area is always be the case. Yeah, it could be. So it's just an equal match. But the, the result holds even if I control for the, so if I were to show you the same uh, regression but just add in target lawyers, so their level of experience doesn't affect and the acquire lawyer um, effect persists. Uh, and so while wow, in principle that could be going on, I think a large part of that's already controlled for once you start controlling things like size of the needle. And, Relative size of the buyer and the target, you know, those kinds of things also will map onto the, uh, the experience of the lawyers and the target. So, um, how are you going to do this? Jump in. I just get lost. How often there's mitigation over these things? Um, yeah, so in this sample, I haven't done the work of trying to figure it out. Um, it, it's, a, it's a little bit complicated because, um, to know for sure, because the um, in the United States, you would literally have to do a 50-state state court level search for every one of the polygons to really know. Um, so what I've done is, um, as a way of trying to get a rough uh, ballpark in this, is for the deals where 
Um, I'm able to identify the lawyers who worked on the deal. I've asked them personally whether they are aware of litigation, which they may or may not be, depending upon what kind of litigation it is. And if and that, so for a total sample of 120, I was able to contact about half, and of those, I got responses from about half, so I've done about 30 responses. And so within that subset, I got about 25% of them able to identify some type of dispute. Not necessarily that went into court, but at least where the parties were um, unhappy with one another for some length of time about the way the uh, risk allocation provisions were playing out. And the principal disputes are coming out of the price adjustment provisions. Uh, not so much, I would have thought these entities would have been a bigger source of complaint, um, but it's, at least I gather from talking to them, that the price adjustments always kick in. There's always going to be some amount that somebody has to pay. <laughs> Whereas the indemnities are only contingent, typically. They're only contingent. only if something arises that was unexpected, that wasn't already um, uh, dealt with. And uh, the price adjustment provisions turn out to be um, uh, uh, surprisingly, um, uh, whatever, uh, dispute-inducing. Um, you're, you know, and part of it is they, they I think part of it is just the lawyer point again, this is uh, whether you believe me or not. Lawyers use in these adjustment provisions accounting terms, which they don't understand. And they use concepts like working capital, which are derivative of other accounting concepts, which often are poorly defined in the accounting literature, and the lawyers sometimes are operating under the false assumption that they're well specified. And then it turns out ex post that the buyer has a very different view of how to think about reserves and therefore how to get to the net working capital number than the target does, and there's a dispute. Now, these are usually resolved without litigation. So of the, whatever I was down to, 25% of 30, so whatever that number is, uh, all but one of those settled before there was any actual in-court litigation. One of them was a real case. So I was able to one case out of this. Uh, this is very limited example. So you can't tell me whether dispute is related to quality of work? No, absolutely not. <laughs> Cannot tell you. Um, I, I, it stands to reason, but empirically I can't prove it with you. Does that mean that only 3% of litigation? Because you said you identified about half the lawyers. No. Yeah, it just, it just means that I can identify 3% with the litigation, yeah. uh, but I, I can't prove it actually. Could you just remind us what how you measure your dependent So for most, for the incidents, it's just counting up the number of different types of risk um, allocation provisions and using a zero to six, you know, thing. I've then gone on and tested some of the same uh, theories, same hypotheses against subsets and looking at things like how long the identification period lasts. Uh, whether the identification is capped, um, what percentage is the holdback of the deal value conditional on there being one. So I've looked at different um, design um, choices as outcome variables as well. So, so, so yeah. have you tried to determine what, what the dependent variable sounds like, and that is the proportion of the risk that is made to the country? Yeah, so other than, I mean, um, I don't think with the, it would be hard to do, is what I would say, to really get at what you're asking. So I think what the best you can do is as a rough proxy, use things like um, 
is there any at all versus the first coverage with Andy done? And then conditional on using it, um, how big are the exceptions? How limited is the total insurance? How, 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 you know, so what's the cap relative to deal size? Right? But, but how can I then reject the hypothesis as we have positions of this company? But they only have one technique they use, but they use it to a very large proportion. Well, that one's easy to reject because that one, um, it's 85% use zero. So you're right, 13%. Okay, but the 13% might live a large proportion. Right, so here, here's the breaking down one by one. So 7% of public targets adjust. The price in the way I was just talking about, um, 7% indemnify the buyer, um, 2% use an earnout, out, uh, 2% use debt, none of them use holdbacks or escrows. That's the, the, you know, and that's actually pretty much consistent with my practice experience for what it's worth. It's, it's rare and those. I follow up on that. So the design of your study includes reps and warranties that are time indemnities. Yeah. But doesn't include reps and warranties that are not. Right. And when I teach reps and warranties at MA, what I mainly tell the students, most of them are not tied to MA, is that the importance of reps and warranties is the satisfaction of the reps and warranties are conditioned to closing. Right. And if they're not satisfied, then you threaten not to close, you have a renegotiation, they don't close. Yep. And to that extent, they're actually allocating, allocating exactly the same kind of risk that you're talking about. They're just having to have a different remedy for yep. the risk. So that without taking that whole side of the picture into account, it's pretty hard to say anything about the, the risk out. I mean, you can find, say, descriptive things about it. Well, so the fact that in public companies, yep. they have none. Right. They simply mean that they're doing it through reps and warranties that aren't tied to indemnities and using the threat of not closing. I'm with you almost all the way until you get to the very end. Because um, in the private target deals, you have the same use of reps as conditions. And they cover the same period of time. I mean, I think the right way to think about this is there's signing, closing, and the future. The reps, your, the way the reps function as conditions is up to closing. So whatever risk resolution has occurred by closing, that amount is, in fact, being allocated potentially to the contract by both public and private targets. And I'm not studying it here, and it's not part of these results. But then you have this whole other period, post-closing, in which some of the risks will not be resolved by closing. By guaranteeing I mean, any business, even a simple business, you're going to have some potential liability from pre-closing events that you won't know about until post-closing. And so that is being allocated very differently by public and private targets. It's basically not being allocated at all. And the normal story, when we talk about that, the normal story I give is, you know, if there are 10,000 shareholders, it's the cost. how are you going to possibly claw back or, or yeah. hold back or do any of those I'm glad to, to now, now give you evidence that what you're saying all these years actually is true as opposed to just conjecture, which it was since uh, Ron. And, but I think another important point here is that it's, it's, it's both ownership dispersion, right? It's not just enforcement, it's also information. Because SEC registration matters even after you control for ownership dispersion, which is going to generate the enforcement costs. And so it's both a point about there's more information in the hands of the buyer 
less information in the hands of the owners and enforcing against the owners as well. All three things are true, and that's all driving down the use of risk allocation post closing in public private deals and in private private deals where the, uh, the, there's dispersed ownership, which you can have a fair amount of. So for me, the more you know, sort of most important take practical takeaway for teaching all this stuff is you know, all three things are going on. The theories actually all matter. Um, in practice, you can't understand this pattern if you just focus on this allocation theory. You can't understand it by just focusing on enforcement costs. Both of them are showing. Okay. We can go back to your last slide for a second. Yep. Show the public versus private. Um, oh, the last slide. Yeah. Well, you were on. Yeah. It seems to me that the striking characteristic that really stands out here: uh, there are differences between private and public, but you see an extreme distaste for both earnouts and holdbacks. Yep. And they are mirror images of each other. They're both suggesting that one side, uh, probably the seller, has grave dissatisfaction with the earnouts or holdbacks, possibly yep. because of the enforcement costs, possibly because the burden would be on them if they wanted to enforce it to sue. And uh, that would make them take a step that has a very high entry cost. Uh, there are differences between private and public. Uh, but I think that is the number one characteristic that you don't particularly like that. And I think you need to investigate just a little bit mm -hmm. whether there are other considerations, tax considerations, enforcement cost considerations, something outside of just your focus on allocation of risk or your focus on uh, um, pure transaction costs. And it may be that for some reason there is, uh, both across public and private companies, extreme dislike for earnouts and holdbacks. We see no more than we always yeah, see. 17% so in private. We never holdbacks never get above 8%. Right. Holdbacks so, are the easiest thing probably to put in. Yeah. I mean, so I, I want to, I think that's consistent sense. though with moral hazard. I mean, I, that is with moral hazard. Um, and so here's my way of thinking about it. If you have a holdback, or an, S or an earnout, either one of those two. The target shareholders in a publicly owned company have to have a governance mechanism in place to coordinate their interests if there's a dispute with the buyer. And in an earnout, it's almost guaranteed there will be a dispute because earnouts, like price adjustment mechanisms, almost always generate somebody's unhappy because you're using accounting concepts which are not carefully specified at a detail level. There's going to be some argument about whether the current accrual that reduces the earnings is too high or too low. And you need, on behalf of the dispersed former public shareholders now, somebody to represent their interests and have them in place for a multi-year period of time as the earnout unfolds is expensive. Uh, that's certainly a valid yeah. point. The data thing is a little bit different because look at the whole back. 92% of people in non-dispersed companies, we barely have four or five shareholders, also don't want that. And 83% of those same private companies don't like it earning out either. Yeah. Um, it doesn't seem to be purely a government difference. It, well, fair enough. I mean, it, it, it could be enforcement cost, but um, you know, 55% escrow. So that suggests that they're okay with the general idea of having money held back as long as some third-party agent is holding it. Still, not all of them. You know, a significant number of them don't want that either. Um, but fair point. This isn't just about moral hazard. This is also just purely about. Um, I think enforcement costs is a big issue. Yeah, yeah. Even in the private context, uh, private company context. Yeah.
So I want to ask about the dependent variable again, where you're using the index. So um, but the issue, the question here is, how confident can you be that that is you know, a linear variable? Um, and what I'm particularly wondering is, can these clauses kind of, can two clauses cancel each other out? So could you have one risk allocation provision that allocates a lot of risk one way, and another one that allocates the risk back again? So actually they kind of, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not really doing anything, uh, wash out in that way. But you count both of those as, you know, that would be going up higher. So it might be, you know, if, if the answer to that is we can't be confident, then what, what I think you have is a measure of contractual complexity rather than, uh, you know, risk allocation. So I... I yeah, so I was... So, um, so two things. I was inspired to use the index by our finance colleagues who study governance. Paul Gompers, all of them. They've been so successful with this. I thought, well, I'll just use an index if that'll make me popular. Um, um, I'm kidding. Um, part of the reason for using the index that they offered and that I think is fair is that it, it allows some abstracting away from the particular details. It allows for greater aggregation of data. It economizes on the data we've got. You can get more out of it. And it doesn't require you to commit to any particular way in which any one of these maps onto, onto the prior theory. They all do. And so, now, unlike our finance colleagues, I think I tried to be a little more careful in which ones I threw into my number um, than Paul initially did um, in his work, Paul Gompers, uh, in, in governance. So I don't think I have any offsetting ones. So I think the, it's hard for me, at least, to think of ways in which um, they, they cover fundamentally different things, right? So price adjustment clauses, and you'll just have to trust me in this, but I can show you lots of examples. The price adjustment clauses are not triggered by the same thing that the indemnities are triggered by, and nor are the earnouts triggered by the same thing. So there are three separate risks. Um, they, they, you know, you know, I suppose you could imagine ways in which the things could, could interact in complicated patterns, um, but they're triggered by different things. And then the three on the lower part are fundamentally substitutes, although they're different mechanisms for doing the same thing. They're more all about enforcement. The same results that I've presented to you show up if you just take the first three uh, on their own, or if you take the first three and the second three as a, as a group. Um, and so both of those um, ways of counting these things up um, are okay uh, for the results I present. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, it's a fair point. There is um, an element of, going back to the lawyer part, complexity particularly when you get into the indemnities. The indemnities are the most, it's interesting to me, they go on and on and on. I mean, they're just, they're like pages and pages of incredibly detailed provisions specifying precisely the amount of risk and how long is being transferred. By contrast, the price adjustment provisions, which generate a lot of disputes, are relatively short. They're typically a paragraph. Um, sometimes they're they cross-reference to an attachment which lays out a little bit the, the accounting mechanisms that are going to be used in coming up with the price adjustment. The earnouts are the most complex um, of the three. They're even longer than the, than the indemnities often. Um, but they also piggyback off of accounting concepts. And then they adjust them in all kinds of ways that are, uh, to me, quite striking. Um, the other three things are really not complex at all. I mean, the, the, the debt, the holdbacks and the escrows, those tend to be you know, kind of simple mechanisms. Um, in these contracts. Um, and another quick question, yeah. which um, you may have addressed this, and I, and I didn't catch it. Um, I can't see the paper, but are, the bids are all cash, right? Or no, no, it's a mix. Um, it's a mix. And does that affect things? No, it doesn't. For this, it doesn't show up. Um, 
I have a separate paper where I'm looking at deal structure, and um, th there it does matter a lot. So the, there, there are strong intercorrelations between whether cash or stock is the principal consideration and how the deal is structured. Because I mean, have you tried interacting that with you know relative size of bidder and target? Because if you've got a if you've got a small bidder and they're paying stock with a big target, then you know actually the risk allocation yes. is quite different. Yes, it's through the stock in a yeah. lot of ways. Yes, I thought I thought going in that that would show up you know sort of significant in the same way that debt financing does. I mean, debt consideration does, but it it really doesn't seem to at least in the you know again small sample, so it's hard for me to, to rule out things like that. Mostly in this kind of work, I'm just reporting positive correlations and not, you know, much jumping up and down on negatives. Um, John, do you yeah. have any data on all of this about whether the target management was retained, which is often normal in both diversifying and cross-border bids? Yeah. Because the target management is retained, you now have a host of self-help remedies. Their compensation will be adjusted. They can be fired. Yeah. They cheated us. They're gone. Uh, that might be a third category that you want to look here. Yep. You might find that they have very different remedies that make it less important with regard to rely upon legal remedies like all backs and Yeah, I mean, so the trick, so I could do that for the public target subset, I think, relatively economically. Um, and well, it's even more likely in the private. But, but the private is very hard to get this information. It's even harder than to get. The lawyers at least are willing to respond to a hard law because some of the between public and private may be that if you more typically retain the management of the private target, you have a lot of control over them that makes that the critical lead mechanism. Right. In a, in a, if a single owner target acquired their compensation post deal is going to be very functionally the same as an earn out, and so there may be some, some substitution effects that I can't do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wish I, you know, um, it would be a different, uh, different enterprise to try to do that. But yeah, so it's, uh, it's a fair point. I think it would make finding the correlations that I do find harder to do, right? Because it's just it's it's important um, uh, information left out of the model and making it harder to find uh, any substantial correlation. Yeah. I have a question about this link between the indemnification and the uh, reps and warranties. Yeah. Um, is it possible that for public targets you you don't find any? risk allocation provisions because you have reps and warranties and you don't need a link to the indemnity because federal securities law actually makes sure that the target management, yeah. for instance, is liable anyway. So yeah. you just don't find the link because they will find it redundant and they, they actually prefer the SEC to investigate and they just piggyback on whatever, um, I don't know, misreporting they find and then they find liability. Um, so just, so Part of what you say I think is right. That is, I think the SEC registration process and the fact that you have liability attached to your public statements by a public company means that the information that the buyer has is going to be much more reliable than it would be without that. It's a slightly different mechanism, though, for, um, in some sense, reducing or mitigating the buyer's risk, because the owners of a public health company do not have that liability unless they themselves are directly involved in management. Right, so you're so as opposed to these private target deals where even among dispersed companies there is some allocation of risk to the owners, right? And that's a so in one case it's about reducing the information asymmetry in a direct way through SEC uh, oversight and through threat of liability against the management of the publicly held company. In the other context, it's um, an insurance provision 
by the owners, some of whom may, some of whom may not have uh, much information about the about the target company. Right? You might say that public, so the management of um, public company knows um, as much as the management of the private company. Right. Um, it has less incentive to cheat right. because only part of the compensation will cannot kind of be channeled back to them. Correct. And in addition to that, they have strong SEC right. um, enforcement threat. So right. the information is not only reliable because it's public, right. but also because the person who negotiates the deal with you has a very strong interest in they are not resulting any litigation. And then you have private um, targets where the owners are usually also in management to mm -hmm. a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And then um, they didn't have to lie throughout the years. They only have to, they can select what they tell you in the negotiations. Right. Once, right, yes. So I agree with all of that. Yes, I think that's. But I mean, what but what you're saying, just to be clear, is on the one hand, a lot of this is about information, right, and the verifiability of information, um, which means it's not all about enforcement costs, right? It's also it's also about fundamentally the, the, the buyer's ability to cheaply gather information that they can rely on in pricing the deal. Um, it's not the exclusive explanation, though, because even within the private company universe, even when you've got 50 shareholders, you still have a correlation with uh, risk allocation there. Right. And maybe the 10 5 would still apply to misrepresentations of reps and margins in the private company. But not, I think, not to the 50th, 52nd, 53rd shareholder, right? And they're not going to see it. No, but I mean, in terms of the managers. Oh, managers, absolutely. Yeah. The of the private company. So the, the distinction, since right. 10 5 applies to all securities transactions, not just transactions. Surprising to many, uh, including uh, uh, some judge, district court judges who found themselves over the in these cases. Um, uh, you might not think that naturally because it is obviously a rule embedded in an act that's meant to apply to public companies and why would two big sophisticated parties want the public company overlay, but they've got it whether they like uh, in the U.S. Yeah. Other questions? Wrap up. I, I just want to, let me say, stop the written. There we go. Um, why do we care about all this in terms of the theory? Um, so if, let me just give you a couple of takeaways on why it matters. I think it's more intuitive why the transaction costs, the fact that transaction costs are significant matters. It's important in two respects. One, it goes back to the lawyer discussion. Sort of regardless of whether you think moral hazard is important in further explaining the patterns here, if transaction costs are significant, then the value of legal services relative to all of these contracts is higher than otherwise would be. Right? So it makes the role of the lawyer in the MA context more potentially significant, or put it slightly differently, transaction cost engineering, actually, there really is something here. There's a lot of room for improving upon the outcome, depending on how well and how efficiently the contract is designed. There's a big difference between the contracts that the very experienced lawyers are signing versus the ones uh, the less experienced worker. Right. And then more generally, as a theoretical matter, I think it also suggests that there's an important role here, a more important role than you might otherwise think, in setting the defaults in the law setting up the what's the baseline that they're going to be contracting around. If transaction costs were relatively low in this context, if you didn't have to worry about enforcement posts, then it might not matter so much what the defaults would be, how long the statute of limitations is for tort liability, what the rules are for fraud uh, liability of various kinds. Given the significance of transaction costs, even in this setting, even in a fairly sophisticated setting with fairly sophisticated parties, 
it's, it means that the default law is going to matter. It means that the stuff that our court law professors uh, you know, fight about actually matters in the M&A context, even despite the fact that, in principle, you can contract around all those rules in the way you want. Transaction costs are quite significant. Therefore, the baseline is going to be the binding constraint in a wide variety of transactions. And interestingly, in the bigger transactions, in the sense of in the ones where the companies are publicly held, that's where the enforcement problems are going to be are going to be greatest. So, I'll stop there. Great. Thanks very much. Great.